Good morning. Let's just, why don't we pray? Let's pray before we get going. God, we are thankful for a family that we can gather with to focus our mind and our hearts on you. We have sung things that we think in our hearts. We have prayed. We have heard scripture. And we just ask, God, that you would lead us today, that you would guide us as we seek to worship you, as we seek to open our hearts to what you would say. Speak to us from this book of Esther and and encourage us to follow you and lead wherever you may lead. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm getting that echo again, Les. Maybe just pull my gain down. I don't know. When Les is up there, I'm very powerfully voiced. I don't know what it is. I echo. That's good. It's good. Sounds good now. Thank you. We are in week three of Esther. We're seeing this story play out. It happens about 500 years before Jesus. The Jews that have stayed behind in Persia after the exile are living there. Um, and and it's, it's a very famous story in Jewish history. Obviously, it's in the Bible, but they celebrate every year the Feast of Purim, which is when the Jews were spared from genocide by the Persians, thanks to the efforts of Mordecai and Esther. Now, in our story, there's four main characters we've been coming back to. There's Xerxes, who's the king of Persia at this time. There's the guy Haman. Okay, good. That's what I said. In the, in the story of Purim, every time they say the word Haman, the crowd boos, right? So we're going to do that just to be consistent. Uh, then you've got Mordecai, this Jewish man who's somehow connected into the administration of the king, and his cousin Esther, whose parents had died, who he's raised, and now she has become the queen. Now, last week we, we talked about her being the queen and how Mordecai refused to bow to Haman, the bad guy, right? And how that set in motion this plans for a vast genocide um, of the entire Jewish race that the king agreed that they could all be wiped out on the 13th day of the 12th month. And Mordecai challenges Queen Esther. He says to her, you have to go to the king. And she says, I can't go to the king. He, he could kill me. He hasn't even invited me in in 30 days, and it's against the law to go to him unless he calls you. And Mordecai says, maybe this is the very reason that you've come to this very time. And last week we heard her say, okay, you get all the Jews in the, the whole uh, town of Susa, the whole city of Susa, and you fast and pray for three days. I'll do that with all my maidens. And then when the, at the end of the third day, uh, I'll go in to see the king. And if I perish, I perish. And so this week we're going to pick up the text in chapter five with Esther's big moment. She, the three days have passed. And she's getting ready. She's, she's standing right outside the king's chambers, getting ready to go in. We'll read 5, 1 to 8 of Esther. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once. Okay, you guys are really, yeah. You've got to commit to this kind of stuff, right? You've got to commit. Where am I at? Verse 5. Bring Haman, 
at once, the king asked, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king asked, again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be granted. And Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them, and then I will answer the king's question. Now, what we see here, Esther's life is never going to be the same after this moment. I I almost hate to gloss over this. She's standing in the, the entryway, the king's up there, and she doesn't know if in the next minute she will be accepted or condemned to death. And literally, it could have been either one. But Esther has summoned up the courage to act. She's actually going to take a step. Sometimes that first step is the most difficult thing, but she's decided, I'm going to go in. If I perish, I perish. And the anticipation of that, I think for the three days, she's just thinking, I could die. This could be my last three days on life, in life. But in order to deal with that fear, we need to take action. We need to take the first step. And that's what we see in this text. She gets ready. She stands at the entrance. She takes a deep breath. And when the king sees her, he welcomes her. And not only that, he says, Esther, what do you want? I'll give you anything. This is more than she could have hoped for, even up to half the kingdom. And it's not, not a bad start. The question is, why not just ask, hey, this guy's going to kill us. Could you stop that? Why not do that right now? You see, Esther takes the first step, but then she takes one step at a time. Instead of immediately asking for the salvation for her people, she asked for the king and that bad guy to come to a banquet (laughs) that very day. And there's a lot of, I think there could be multiple reasons why she puts it off. One could be fear, right? You don't know this king. He's acting very acted very impulsively very rashly in the past you're not quite sure what he'll do and there's a moment of fear that wants you to put off the big ask i know this experience very well because uh when i flew up here to uh propose to my now wife uh i was sitting watching a hockey game with her father lauren davies who strikes fear into the best of us sometimes Right? And, and I knew that at some point in that hockey game, I needed to say to him, would you mind, can I have your permission to ask your daughter to marry me? Right? The trick was I'd only met him about 24 hours before. So my heart was pounding a little bit. And we're sitting there watching the hockey game. Now, I'm an American, but I'm not an idiot. I know you don't interrupt him in a hockey game. <laughs> so I wait till there's a commercial. And during that commercial, I think, okay, here we go. One, two, three. I'll just wait till the next commercial. I'll wait till the next commercial. And what do you know? The hockey game comes back on. I went through three cycles of commercials before I got the courage to say, do you mind if I ask your daughter to marry you? And then, to me, to marry me. See, I'm still, even right now, the, the, the thought of that moment, my knees are shaking, right? And he was very gracious to me, but... You know, that, that's what I can almost see Esther saying, uh, let's have a banquet. Yeah, a banquet's a great idea. Why don't you come to a banquet? Maybe it's fear. You know, she's seen his impulsiveness and anger. And, and maybe she thinks, you know what? I know this guy, a full stomach and a few cups of wine is going to make him a little more open to my request. For whatever reason. And she may be too. She may just be building anticipation. 
She may think, I want him to wonder for a bit. She may be, we don't know, right? But even when that moment comes and they're at the banquet and he says, whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, tell me. She puts it off for another day. How does she? Oh, if you really want to give me what I want, come again tomorrow. Just you and Haman. There you go. Good. You're still on board. Thank you. See, the, the delay actually serves the story in some very ironic ways. It allows us to go along with what I call Haman's roller coaster ride. His roller coaster ride. Chapters 5 to 7 have to be one of the best plot twists in the history of, of history. Like, it's really something. Haman has his definite ups and downs. Okay, and he's going to end with an up. He's going to end with a 75 feet in the air up that is really a down. We'll get to that, okay? It's a constant turning on its head, the expectation of what could happen. Let's look at 5, 9 to 14. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And tomorrow, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. And his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a gallows built. Now, I'm going I'm to change this a bit because gallows in our English translations really was picked up from, from some of the other translations. The word literally in Hebrew is pole. And the word for hang that's coming up is literally impaled. And I'm just going to read it like it's, like it's not English. They didn't have gallows as far as we know. What they would do in Persia was they would make these big poles and they would take people up high and they would drop them on them. So you can imagine the visual there. Uh, so yes, he's hanging him up wants to hang him on a pole, but hang him not in a way around his neck, right? Have a pole built 75 feet high, 50 cubits, some of your Bibles will say, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. And then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman. And he had the gallows built. It delighted him. Don't you? You love this guy. You see, in these two, we see two things in these five verses. First is this exclusive invitation, he went out that day happy and in high spirits because he's had the invitation to have a banquet with just the king and queen, right? Just the royal couple and him. He's amazed to be invited to this exclusive banquet. And not only that, he's invited to another one tomorrow. This was the epitome of success. He has access to the power of Persia like nobody else in the entire kingdom. What could ever be better than that? Well, there's a second thing in these five verses. You have this exclusive invitation and you have this recurring irritation. Mordecai. As soon as he walks out, who does he see? Mordecai. And it says he neither, neither, neither stood to honor him or was afraid of him. Didn't show honor or fear. And the one whose name we will not mention held it together until he got home. How many of you have had that? You've had a bad experience. You've held it together until you get around people that you love and then you just lose it. This is him. This is what's happening to him. Verse 11 to 13. 
Everything's going good. He says, I look at my vast wealth, my many sons, all the ways the kings honor me. I'm elevated above all the other nobles, officials. And that's not all. I'm the only person invited to these two banquets other than the king and the queen. But none of this gives me satisfaction as long as I see that guy Mordecai. It is a recurring irritation that he can't deal with. And Haman's wife, Haman's wife, comes up with a solution. You think he was a bad guy. Like, he was nice compared to his wife. You know, at least he gives the Jews a year to prepare for their genocide. She says, build a 75-foot pole. Who comes up with this idea off the top of their head? Right? Hmm, honey, I've got an idea. Build a pole 75 feet high and let's impale him on it. Ask the king. You are the, you're the second in command. Ask the king. He'll do that. Go to the dinner and be happy. And Haman says, why did I not think of that? Why didn't I think, what a great idea. I knew I made a good decision when I married you, he says, right? And then in chapter six, we begin to see how it all plays out, both Haman's plan and God's plan. Let's look at chapter six, one to 14. This is where the twist happens. How many of you don't know what's what's coming next? How many of you not read this story? Just raise your hand. I don't, okay. Everybody knows what's coming. Everybody? Somebody's lying in here. That's okay. (laughs) I refuse to impale you. Um, I love this. This is the plot twist. That night, the king couldn't sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found, recorded there, that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, the king's attendants answered. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. And his attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king said. And when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And here's a picture into the heart of this man. Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man, the king, I can hear his voice, for the man, the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head, and then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes and let them robe the man, the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man, the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. Amazing. Who sits at the king's gate. Can you just imagine when he hears that, the impact on our friend there. Do not neglect anything that you've recommended. It was such a good idea. I want you to do it all. So Haman got the robe and the horse and he robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. <laughs> Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman 
away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Now, you remember back to week one when Mordecai foiled this assassination attempt. He heard these guards talking about it. He told the king, well, it had gone unpunished or unrewarded. So that happens. The king can't sleep. How many of you, when you tell your kids bedtime stories, tell them story, incorporate them into the story? And then Johnny went and did this. And then Susie came. He says, hey, bring me the stories about my reign. This is Xerxes. Tell me everything good that's happened. And they start reading this, this history. And, and, and he hears that. And you, you see the whole story, the dynamic. Oh, we've got to honor this guy. And, and it's just played completely the way that the one whose name we will not mention for the moment did not want it to play. And when all this is over, those closest to him realize you are a marked man. This is bigger than you. There is nothing you can do to stop this. Things are bad, they say. When you look at how this is playing out, things are bad, and they're going to go from bad to worse. Let's look at chapter 7. So the king and Haman, you guys are getting weaker, but that's okay, I, I, I appreciate it. The king and, and, and that guy went to dine with Queen Esther, and they were drinking, as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. And King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man that has dared to do such a thing? What's funny you should ask, she says. Esther said, the adversary and evil is this vile Haman. Yeah, that was a stronger one, yeah. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen, and the king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. That's bad timing. And the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. It all falls apart for Haman. How many of you have heard that Shakespearean phrase from Hamlet, hoisted by his own petard? I've always heard that. I never knew what it meant. So Google taught me this week that it literally means making a small bomb incendiary device and being blown up by it. Hoisted by your own petard. So now you know that, right? Well, here's Haman. He is hoisted by more than his own petard. He's hoisted by his own pole up above everybody and died. First, Mordecai gets what Haman wants, the honor and the parading through the streets. And then Haman gets what he wants Mordecai to have. It's a fascinating twist of plot, a great story. 
But once again, how do we apply this story? I mean, there's some basic applications. Don't plot a genocide against the Jewish people. Okay, don't do that. That's what the text is telling us. Uh, second, be careful planning to impale those who irritate you. That's another good application. So make sure you don't do that this week. Uh, or here's one a little closer to home. Don't assume that you are the one the people in power want to honor. Don't jump to that assumption. But, but what I see in these three chapters is something I think is very relevant to all of us. It's something that we hit on in our first spiritual formation retreat every fall on identity. And, and I'm going to dig a little bit into that. I would encourage you, if, if it makes sense to you, to come and, and join that retreat because it's a really powerful idea. And that is how to define who we are. How to define who we are. See, my approach is to to let this evil man serve as an example of how not to do things. He, he's done that fairly well throughout the whole story. And see, the gospel, the gospel today gives us resources that he did not have. Right? He, he didn't have that to draw on. We do. And so at the root, it's an identity issue. It's one of the biggest questions that we all have to answer. Who actually am I? What gives me value? What is my identity? And as you read the story, you can begin to see Haman's basis of identity. Three things stand out here. Something, like I say, that we cover in that retreat. They're basic human needs that we all have, but they get out of balance. What happens is these basic human needs I'm going to talk about, we all have them. There's nothing wrong in them. But what happens is we begin to embrace them as the only way that we can actually be happy. We begin to think, for me to be who I am, for me to be solid and of value, I have to have these three things. They show up at different times during the story, but five, chapter 5, verse 11, has them all. It sums up what he really holds to be of the utmost importance. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. See, the first need that he has out of whack is this need for safety and security. We all have a need for safety and security. We want to be protected. We don't want to endanger our lives. We want to know we're taken care of. It says he boasted to them about his vast wealth and his many sons. Two things in that culture that said you are safe and you are secure. You have value. His, his stuff that he has and the legacy that he leaves makes him of value and importance. It's something he takes pride in, something that makes him happy. Look at all this stuff I've got. Look at, look at my sons who will you know, take care of me in my old age and continue my dynasty and my wealth long after I'm gone. You see, safety and security... Our basic human needs, nothing wrong with wanting to be safe and secure, but when you have to have it above all else, when that's what will definitely make you happy and nothing else, then your identity's out of line. Jesus says in Luke 12, 15 to the Pharisees, or to, to his disciples, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He doesn't say that possessions are bad, that stuff is bad, that having a bank account is wrong. He doesn't say that. He just said, that's not your identity. That's not what you base it in. 
See, these things can become an idol. And when we lose them, it's like our legs have been cut out from under us. We don't know what to do if we don't have this safety and security. Oh, hi, Reed. <laughs> safety and security of never being interrupted in a sermon, right? Did I? Well, let's say good things for Reed. Way to go, Reed. Thank you. <laughs> Reed is the anti-Haman. I'll just really, I'll really uh, emphasize my points from here on out. Make you listen. So safety and security is the first one, right? And, and nothing wrong with it. You hear me very clearly about that. But if it becomes what we tie our identity to and our security and our feeling of value, we're out of whack. We also see that he bases who he is and his own value on affection and esteem. The second part of 5.11 says he boasted him as vast wealth as many sons and all the ways the king had honored him. Look how much the king likes me. Affection and esteem. He's the only one invited to these exclusive dinners. And you know, even that Mordecai thing on the horse that went the wrong way, he at least could say, you know what? When I say to the king, get your trust, your best prince to lead this person around, who did he pick? He picked me. I'm the big prince, right? He's basing his value on affection and esteem, on being liked and honored by others. Once again, it's not bad to want to be liked. I'm not telling you to be the people that everybody else hates. Some Christians have that down pretty well already. I'm not telling you that. I'm saying there's nothing wrong with being liked and wanting people to like you. But when that becomes the basis of your identity, when if they don't like you, everything is called into question, it's, it's out of whack. It's, it's out of line. Jesus, in, 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 in relation to the Pharisees, it says, yet at, at the same time, this is in uh, John 12, 42 and 43. It's not going to be up there, but listen. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. People really wanted to trust in Jesus, but if we do that, these really important people might throw us out of the synagogue. And we can't handle that. We need to be accepted. Things like this can become an idol. They can become the things that we hold to to define us and our value. And finally, the third thing we see, Haman. Okay. The projector died, not you guys, right? <laughs> Haman basing his quest for meaning and happiness on power and control. The last part of 511 boasting about how the king had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. He's actually at the top of the heap. You remember the king actually took off his signet ring in chapter 3 and just gave it to him. He said, you make the law, whatever you want to do. He is literally one of the most powerful people in the kingdom. And once again, power and control, I'm not asking you to live a totally out of control life. Nothing wrong with that as a human need. We need that kind of sense that we can make decisions and things can happen. But if that becomes what you have to have for value and identity and happiness, you're, you're out of line. Your life is skewed. See, control can become an idol. We, we allow ourselves to think we have control. And to some degree, we are in control of our lives. But that makes, and that makes us happy. You know, I've got some control. I've got, I, can handle, I can make decisions. I can do things. I can go places. 
It makes us happy until all of a sudden we aren't in control. And we're all going to come to a point in our life where we aren't in control. And the question is, if your identity is tied to being in power and being in control of your situation, then who are you? Jesus says in Matthew 6, 27, Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? How much control do you really have? Can any of you, by worrying, add one, even one minute to our lives? We can't. We don't have that kind of power and control. Once again, power and control are, are to some degree human needs, and there's nothing wrong with a healthy balance of seeking to have power and control in your life. But if you're tying your security, your value, your identity to that, you're going to come up short. See, the problem comes with all these things when they become idols. We, we weren't made to have ultimate power and control, so when we try to grasp it, it's an idol. It's something that we are choosing, safety and security, affection and esteem, above, and power and control, above surrender and trust in God. We choose those things. We build our life around them. There's these, and, and, and the thing that happens, and this is what we talk about in the first retreat, is, is it happens at a subconscious level. We have these things happening in us, this desire for safety and security and affection and esteem and power and control. And because it's down here, we think that's the only way we can actually be happy and fulfilled. They bubble up into our conscious mind and they, we, we form aversions and attachments, things that we want to happen and things that we don't want to happen. You see it in the life of Haman, right? He wanted to be honored. Welcome back. <laughs> he wanted to be honored by the king. Just ignore him. Any luck? Yeah, you're not. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Lead by example. You're right. It's hard for me. I'm a, I'm a man. I can only do one thing at a time. See, with, with Haman, you got me back on track. He was, he was trying to seek those things in his life and avoid the loss of those things. That's why Mordecai drove him crazy. I got to get rid of that. We do that in our own life. We try to seek the things that make us feel safe and secure, loved and powerful. And we try to avoid the things that make us feel unsafe, unloved and out of power. Now, the problem with life is it doesn't operate on those terms and reality runs right into us. And we have people that don't like us, no matter how nice we are. And we have times that we feel unsafe, and we have times that we feel out of control. And in that moment, we have these emotional frustrations and outbursts. And that, that's the key thing here, right? One of the things, Haman, had he been listening to this sermon, instead of plotting the, the death of the Jews, would have learned this, that you have to start recognizing your emotions as indicators. You have to recognize your emotions are indicators of something going on. We, we see it all the way back in chapter 1. Remember Xerxes calls his wife, Queen Vashti, to come and parade in front of the people, in front of all this drunken party. Come, you're so beautiful, I want them to see you. And she says no, and he gets angry, so angry, that he ends up deposing her. You know what had happened there? His, his muscle that wanted to be safe and secure and loved and powerful was thwarted by Vashti saying, I'm not coming. And at that moment, what he thought he needed to make himself happy and meaningful and visibly powerful to his kingdom was threatened. And he got angry. 
And, and same in our life, same with, with Haman, right? When, his, when those things were threatened in his life, he got angry. It says in, in verse 9 that he went out that day happy and in high spirits because I had everything I wanted. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, this is 5.9, and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage. 5.13, he says, all this, all these things give me no satisfaction. I'm depressed. As long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the gate. And in verse 12 of chapter 6, after he had led Mordecai through the streets, it says he rushed home with his head covered in grief. These deep and powerful and, and explosive moments of emotion should help us to see that something is going on. Our plan to be happy and have value and identity has been thwarted. Think in your own life, when have you gotten really mad lately? I bet if you sit there long enough with the Spirit of God and ask Him to show you, what, what, which one of those three was thwarted in that interaction? Right? It, it's, it's an indicator that something's going on. Now, now they're warning signs. When you're, when you're really angry or when you're desperately afraid or when you're completely overwhelmed, when you're terrified, when you're, when you're depressed, when you're high, even when you're really excited... What's making me so excited? Sometimes that's just the fact that you've got one of those three needs met. And it gives you insight in your own life as to what it is that's competing for the place in your life that God should hold. You know, we can, when we get angry or afraid or whatever, we can try harder to make what we want happen. Or we can allow the Spirit to expose the idol that we're holding on to. You know, David wrote Psalm 139, Search me, God, know my heart. Test me, know my thoughts, see if there be any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Those things, safety, security, love and affection, power and control, can only be met in a relationship with Jesus. That's the only place that we're truly safe. It really is. I mean, even the martyrs that died burned at the stake were safe in their relationship with Jesus. It's the only place that we're loved no matter what we do. And it's the only place that we can surrender to the one who actually has power and control. That's the only place those things can actually be met. And if we strive to hold on to what we want out of them, instead of surrendering and letting God say, just let go. Let me take care of you in this spot. It may not look like you think it's going to look. But you need to, in that moment, start resting in something solid. The evil man in our story has built his life on things that he cannot keep going. Safety and security, power and affection, or I mean, love and esteem and affection and power and control. He's built his life on those things. That is who he is, but they're all idols. They've all exalted him instead of letting him surrender to God, and they eventually destroy him. In Colossians 2, 9 and 10, it says something really fast. If you've got your Bibles, we don't... Oh, we do have it back. Way to go. I just want you to just... Let's just read this verse a couple times. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. That word fullness is the Greek word pleru. It means complete, fulfilled, lacking nothing. So in Christ, everything about God we see in Christ. Now listen, and then it continues. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Not you will be brought to fullness. Not one day you'll be complete. One day you'll be fulfilled. One day you'll have everything you need. In Christ, right now, Paul says, you are there. 
That's why it's an idol when you turn to something else to make you see if you can be fulfilled. In Christ, you are fulfilled. You, you, you do have safety and security. You do have affection and esteem. You are connected to the one who has power and control. You have all those things met. And when we run to fill our identity and make ourselves dependent on those things, what we're doing is turning from Jesus to idols to define our identity. And he says, you need to rest in something solid. Just imagine an identity and fulfillment not based on how well you can keep things going. Not based on how much people like you. Not based on how much you have, on how rosy your future looks. Imagine your identity based on the fact that God has called you, loves you, gives himself for you, and will keep you no matter what happens. If you can move to that point where you trust him for your identity rather than building on everything else, you'll have a life that cannot be shaken. doesn't matter what they take from you. doesn't matter what people think about you because you can rest in that identity. Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage in North Africa around 250 A.D., the, the, the Christians in, in that area were undergoing huge persecution by the Roman Emperor Valerian, and he writes a letter to his friend Donatus, and he says this, It's a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and good people who have learned the great secret of life. They have found joy and wisdom, which is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians, and I've become one of them. You see, he realized their identity was not based on safety, power, on affection and esteem. It was based on trust in a God who gives them all those things in his way, in his time. And that is who we are in Christ. That is the deeper foundation we have to rest on. Not what we have, not what we can do, not what people think of us, but on the fact that no matter what happens, Christ has us. We are his. He loves us despite our failure. He will walk with us through all our fear. And he can overcome anything that, that, that could ever be, we would, we would see it as taking things away from us. He can overcome that. That's the thing about Christians. Even when we die, we don't lose. Even, even, if, even if you lose every penny that you have today, even if the rest of your life from this day on is horrible and difficult and painful, you are in Christ. Nothing of any value, eternal value, can ever be taken away from you. If you can begin to rest in that, it changes the way you see the world. It changes the way you live. And it speaks volumes to the world around you. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you meet these needs. We, we don't see it. We don't always trust it by any means. And we are so used to living for safety and affection or esteem and, and power or control that often we don't even realize that's what we're thirsting after. But God, wake us up in these moments of both strong and powerful emotions and very debilitating emotions. Help us to see what it is that we're holding on to. Help us to dig down underneath and be able to let go of these things and trust that you will meet our need for safety and security. You will meet our need for love and affection. You will meet our need for power and control in your way because of your great love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
I got an email from a friend this week that said, I'm just struggling with knowing for sure. How certain do I have to be about what you say about God for it to work? And I said, you know, it, it, it's a tricky thing because certainty is not what you hold on. You're never going to be certain. You're never going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt until you step. Because this kind of stuff, this basing your identity in something solid, is only something you know for sure after you've made the decision. You remember the Indiana Jones movie? Right? Step by step of faith where he's taking a step out and there's nothing there. And he takes a step, but there is something there. But he can only know once he takes that step. That is the Christian life. You can continue to hold on to all these things to give yourself value and meaning the rest of your life, things you can see. But if you'll let them go by faith and trust that you are who he says you are, that, that my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, if you will trust that, I promise you, he will show up. Maybe not the way you think. Maybe not as quick as you think or as comfortable as you think. But he will be there. That's my prayer for you. Amen. Yeah.